Coming up on Garden Talk. I'm mending with like the natural fertilizer. So I add a lot of the guano, the bone meal, blood meal. And I found that just really making my own mix turned out to be the perfect solution and really just helped to cut a lot of costs. It just goes to show that by having the perlite and creating those little pockets, it really does help, you know, the root system, the plant and the overall health. Show me on something that runs cool, something that's not too heavy, something that uh, does not run too hot and is full spectrum and has the external dimmer. Those are the main things that I look for when buying a light. It's not necessarily all about like spending loads of money to achieve a perfect setup. Plants can't tell if you're using like a super expensive piece of equipment over it or if you're using like a 3x2 frame that you built and made your own scrognet out of. It just knows it's being trained. What's up everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, aka Mr. Growit and you're tuned into the Garden Talk Podcast. This is episode number 62. In this episode, I interview Matt from the ICANN THC channel. He's been gardening for 12 years, and many of you know him from his channel and podcast here on YouTube. In this episode, he talks about gardening on a budget with limited resources. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero costs for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Big thanks to our sponsor, Gorilla Grow 10. Check out their carbon filters to help get clean, contaminant-free air. The filters remove odor, pathogens, disease-causing spores, contaminants, dust, and bacteria from the air. They use a two inch thick layer of coconut carbon, which is the most eco-friendly and sustainable source of carbon. It has a significantly higher density of micropores compared to other forms of activated carbon. This results in it being 50% more effective at absorbing odors and contaminants. Go to the website growstrongindustries.com and use discount code MrGrowIt for 15% off. AC Infinity is a sponsor of the podcast. Coupon code MrGrowIt will get you a discount on their products. I've been using their Cloudline T6 and T4 inline fans for several years now, and I absolutely love the automation built into them. On the inline fans controller, you can have set points for high and low temperature, as well as high and low humidity. This greatly helps control my indoor garden environment, so the temperature and humidity stays in the ideal ranges. I will leave a link to AC Infinity down in the description section below, and don't forget to use coupon code MrGrowIt for a discount on their products. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk Podcast. Today I am joined with Matt from the ICANN THC channel. How are you doing today? Man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm finally happy to be on here with you. You know, we've been talking about it for quite some time now. I'm just happy to be able to finally jump out and chill out with you, chat, and see what's going on, man. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, no problem. I'm familiar with the YouTube channel. You're a fellow content creator busting out grow videos and you have a podcast now and just a whole bunch of good content so um, i'm glad we're linking up today and we're able to uh to merge our minds a little bit and have a grow conversation you know (laughs) yeah most definitely i mean you've honestly been an inspiration for me and like a lot of my grows so mad respect to you shout out to you um the whole from the stash podcast all the fam pigeons and rob man all of you guys are awesome so mad love mad respect to you guys dude Honestly. That's so cool to hear. That's awesome. 
For sure. For those listening in, Matt's been in a situation similar to a lot of you listening to this podcast today, uh, really having to keep things budget-friendly. He lived in an area where it's difficult for him to get grow equipment, both in person and even shipped to him. So he learned to do a lot of stuff on the budget and found ways to take an alternative approach when needed. So that's really what I want to get into today in this talk. But first, can we do an introduction? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into gardening? For sure, for sure. Um, well, I got the channel, but I actually started gardening long before the channel was created. So my first grow was like a medicinal grow back in like 2010, 2011. It was out in the UK in Southampton, you know, so shout out to the UK, mad love. Um, it was actually with one of the HPS bulbs as well. So it was like a little closet grow, um, HPS bulb, really hot. Um, a lot of mistakes were made. I got some nice um, magic beans and randos and it actually turned out to be a male variety. Um, so <laughs> it was a bit in vain, but the lessons learned were fantastic. Um, other than that, I grow a lot of other plants in my garden as well. So I like like house plants such as snake plants, spider plants, aloes, uh, even the mother of thousands that propagates like crazy. Um, I also like like thyme, basil, mint, oregano, those sort of stuff because I really like to just throw that in there in my cooking and use that, try to be very self-sufficient. So um, gardening's just always been something that I lean to. I mean, my mom got me into it when I was really, really small. So shout out to her as well, you know, for laying the foundation. Got to give credit where credit is due, right? <laughs> awesome. Yes, 100% dude. <laughs> So what do you think your, what would you say your overall style of gardening is like today? Are you, are you mostly indoors, outdoors, growing soil, cocoa, hydroponics? Do you use organic inputs, synthetic inputs? What's your style? Um, well, mainly a lot of soil. I've grown outdoor and I've grown indoor. My preference is indoor just because you can really control the environment. You can control what goes in there and you can control the light, the humidity, the moisture. You can control all that good stuff. So that's sort of like my preference. I did grow outdoors. I ran into some challenges with that. Uh, such as the pests, the uh, nature's automatic clock, you know, from 12 to 12, that sort of stuff. It was always on that cycle for me. So that was a bit difficult in itself. Um, I've grown indoors now, and like I said, I use a lot of soil. That's my preferred style of growing. I will sort of amend it with, like, natural amendments, the bat guano, um, a lot of organic stuff. I did start off with, like, the bottle nutrients, um, but I sort of veered away from that as I got more, like, knowledge behind me. So we can get into that a bit more later on, but for now, I pretty much say that my main style of gardening is, like, an organic style, which basically m moves around soil. It centers around the soil. I like to use potting mix and natural amendments. Um, I have, I'm not big on the hydrophonics simply because I haven't tried it yet. Um, I have tried pure peat moss mixtures, but that turned out to be very acidic and very hard to like work with. So I found the easiest way, and like I said, keeping it on a budget turned out to be soil. So it always just turned back to soil for me, and that was just the easiest way to, to move on a budget, you know? I was going to ask you, you know, first question, what do you use for medium and containers and that soil? Are you like using the native soil out of your backyard and like rehabbing it to 
uh, you know, inoculate with microbes, aerate, so on and so forth, make it in, into usable for uh, medicinal plants? Or are you actually, uh, you know, is it available locally to where you can buy soil either by the bag or by the yard or by whatever? Fantastic question. Well, I've actually used like a lot of soil from the backyard and just sort of like revamped it. So I'll try to, like I said, get a lot of the uh, bat guano because you can get that locally um, in the Caribbean. That's where I'm from, actually, Trinidad and Tobago. Right now I'm in Colorado. So back in Trinidad and Tobago, you did get like a lot of the um, grow supplies, the nutrients and that sort of stuff. But because it was imported, there was a slight like increase in the price on those sort of stuff. Especially if you want to bring it in yourself, you've got to pay customs and taxes and stuff. So I found that um, just like trying to circumvent that, using the easily available organic fertilizers are a great way to just give the plant what it needs, right? So I found myself getting into that a lot. Um, I don't know if that actually answers your question, but I did find myself getting into that a lot. Now, did you have to add in any microbes? Like a lot of people don't inoculate with microbes. Did you, were you able to purchase microbes locally at all or was it just not available for you? Um, it was not really available. Uh, the, the typical ones that I would get would be like the, even just the mycorrhiza. Sometimes you get that a lot, uh, but that's more like fungi and bacteria and stuff. So it really wasn't necessarily that available um, back then. But now that I'm in Colorado, I think it would be easier to get it. But that said, uh, when I was growing back in the Caribbean, a lot of the fox farm soils and stuff, you were able to get that. So I did try to run with those a bit. Um, and my experience with those was sort of hit and miss, um, but I did have great results with like the regular ProMix. And again, I go back to amending with like the natural fertilizer. So I add a lot of the guano, the bone meal, blood meal, a lot of that sort of stuff. And I found that just really making my own mix turned out to be the perfect solution and really just helped to cut a lot of costs because you can get a lot of these natural fertilizers for pretty cheap and you can get them at a lot of grow shops, you know, as opposed to trying to buy and bring in the brand name stuff. So that's just something that I've learned. Um, but to answer your question in terms of the inoculation of microbes, not all that much, to be honest with you. Yeah, you're probably getting a lot of the microbes from the amendments anyways, all natural amendments. Yeah. You know, a lot of that comes comes with it. So um, that can definitely help yeah. with the breakdown process and such. Now, what about containers? So you mentioned you're using soil with the amendments, but what do you use for containers? Um, I've tried a lot of containers. That's a great question, Chris. Um, I've tried a lot of containers. So like I found that keeping it simple often works best. So like the fabric ones, those are great. They're, you know, pretty inexpensive. They're reusable. But I found that when using the fabric ones, it can be really difficult to transplant out of those, especially if you've got a big plant and the roots are like really busting through that fabric. Um, you can cause a lot of damage to the roots. And I've actually shocked the plant already. So I if I'm using the fabrics, I tend to try to use them as the final pot, right? So when it comes down to what pots I actually use, I use a mixture. I start off with the plastic pots. I find that those are very easy to, you know, transplant out of. They're durable um, and they hold the water very well. You know, if I'm using a smaller fabric pot, I find that water runs out of it a lot and that can be stressful, you know, just... I've actually seen one of your videos where you talk about the dumping water over top method when you're watering your plants. I do that a lot. So I've got a really heavy hand and just having water everywhere in the grow room isn't always ideal. So I like the, fa the, pla uh, the plastic pots to start off. And as we go into like the flowering stage, then I can pop them into some of the fabrics and then I'll harvest from there soon after. But right now I'm actually just using some of those like super cheap... Um, 
like almost like a, a plastic film. So it's like 90 cents. I think I paid for one of them and it's just like a, a sort of plastic film with a few holes and I added a few extra holes just to give it that extra aeration and stuff. But um, that's that's really what I grow and I try to keep it simple. I try to figure out what works best for me because a lot of people, depending on their environment, where they're growing, uh, different pots will dry out faster depending on your environment, right? So like the fabric ones will dry out a lot faster in certain climates as opposed to the, pl the plastic ones. So you really got to find what works for you. And what works for me was the plastic and then transplanting into the fabric as they get uh, older or the transplant into flower, that, that sort of stage. So um, that works best for me. But I've seen a lot of people in the Caribbean where I'm from growing like in um, buckets. They use like very creative stuff, you know, um, wheelbarrows. There are a lot of creative stuff because it's not always ideal for them to go out and, you know, spend money on the plastic pots. And even those plastic pots can be pretty expensive, you know, back in the Caribbean. So um, a lot of ingenious ideas have been seen on um on my facebook group i've got a facebook group where i post a lot of our uh, stuff that i can thc channel so i've seen a lot of girls out there just being so creative and you know mad love to them but for me i like the plastic parts when i start off and then go on to the fabric ones i was gonna say there are a lot of creative ways out there i mean a lot of people are using the five gallon buckets that they get from like lowe's or home depot those are pretty cheap i think yes. like two or three bucks or something like that for those containers I've seen people use like peanut butter jars and like the like large tubs of peanut butter and like turning that into grow pots yeah. or just like large plastic containers, you know, from food and stuff like that. So like there are ways to go about yes. it. Uh, one thing is just kind of be aware of is that you don't want light to be able to penetrate through it. That could potentially lead to Absolutely. algae growth. Uh, of course, if you see an algae growth, then that's uh, one of the signs of overwatering, you know, too much water in the medium as well. But uh, algae does yeah. grow off the the light there and then as far as one other thing i wanted to mention is those air pots i don't know how much they cost but like i'm thinking if you're using like your native soil which can be somewhat compact um, not a lot of people add like perlite or lava rock or something like that to add in aeration because these plants don't grow real well in a compact medium at least the medicinal varieties that we're, that we're referring yeah. to so maybe having those air pots would probably be beneficial to make sure that there is air getting to the root zone, um, you know what I mean? So it's not choking up the roots yeah. and stuff like that. So I forget to mention that one. 100%, I would agree with you on that. And just to add to that point, actually, when I'm actually using native soil outdoors, I would actually add a hefty amount of perlite because that perlite sort of like goes to your point. It helps to um, add oxygen to the roots. It helps to break up that really thick soil because I've actually grown in like some native soil on its own, nothing added. It was literally just like dirt um, and when it got wet it became like mud so the roots had a really tough time penetrating through that mud and um, really establishing themselves so it just goes to show that by having the perlite and creating those little pockets it really does help you know the root system the plant and the overall health you know so I second that honestly yeah and then you mentioned the amendments as well you touched upon them but I'd like to get just a little bit deeper into them so for the vegetation stage, what are you using for amendments and like when are you top dressing? If you maybe let us know what ratios you're using, if you know of, and then also for flowering, same, same deal. Okay, so recently I've got into like using the Gaia Green Amendments uh, when it comes to top dressing. So initially I'll use my, um, I'll just go for a very basic potting mix since I'm up here in Colorado. I've just gone to Walmart and got like a cheap $3 bag of potting mix and I'll try to amend that myself as best as I could with like, um, um, bat guano, 
bone meal, blood meal, worm castings, um, a few other things I'm just sort of missing right now. But that will usually help me out for the first few weeks of the plant's life. You know, sometimes I might add, add some um, kelp in there as well. And that really does help a lot. But that helps me out for the first few weeks of the plant's life. When it comes down to um, the flowering stage, when it starts to need a lot of the P and K ratios, you know, the phosphorus and the um, potassium and that sort of stuff, then I sort of need a bit more nutrients. The plant starts, starts to give, show me signs that it's really hungry and it needs some more food. So at that point, then I'll start to like um, top dress with the Gaia Green. But because uh, the Gaia Green takes a little while for it to actually work into the soil, for it to break down, for the plant to absorb it, what I'll start to do is uh, two weeks or so before I actually flip the flower, I will top dress because I know that I'm going to flip the flower within the next two weeks. So it'll give the, chance, the plant a chance to break down everything, absorb it through the roots, and that way you know I'm sort of ahead of the game. Because it's always harder to recover from a deficiency than to deal with that up front, you know. So that's just something that I've learned. It's always, always harder to like recover than to deal with it up front. Um, but when it comes to like just the overall, my overall feeding stage cycle and stuff, um, what I would say is that the natural side of things has worked fantastic for me. Um, I haven't really had any signs of overfeeding or any signs of burning. Um, if there are issues with slight deficiencies, sometimes I may just use like a, um, a little nutrient booster. It may be liquid nutrients, um, like there's liquid organic nutrients such as kelp like I mentioned before. Um, that's a fantastic thing that I use. I love it. I use it all the time. Um, I'll mix that up and I will just, you know, add it to my water and water it in. So that sort of helps the microbes. It doesn't um, attack the microbes or anything, but I found that it has great results for me. Okay, so there's your approach with soil, the containers, nutrients throughout the life cycle. One thing I did want to mention is that, uh, you know, a lot of people seem to be taking the natural farming approach, and that is a way you can save money, you know, learning, in, learning K&F, Jadam, which we're not going to get into on this episode, but there have been uh, like two or three episodes in the past here on Garden Talk with uh, with some people that have a lot of good knowledge in Jadam and KNF in particular, and it's easy to save money that way. You know what I mean? Because you're actually going out into the woods and uh, getting your own indigenous microorganisms, for example, uh, and your own you're creating your own fermented plant juice. And your own fermented fruit juice as well. So there's like so many different things you can do, uh, and those ways you can actually save money because you can use things that you probably have laying around that you could you don't have to go out and spend money on. So 100%. And then there's also composting, right? I mean that's a whole other avenue we could talk about is people who are composting their waste and turning that into things that they can put that they can toss dress into their medium and and have usable fertilizer through compost, right? Uh, and of course, the microorganisms, the beneficials. So uh, I don't know if you compost at all or not yet. Um, I've composted like a few times, but like in my experience, it just becomes so smelly and it can like just really get to you. And like, especially my small, small crib, like the grow room is pretty close to like where, where my studio was. Um, so just to have to like inhale that all the time was a bit rough. 
Um, but that said, it was a fantastic way to, you know, inoculate the microbes just to get the microbes going in the soil, just to feed that plant some organic stuff. Because like you said, a lot of stuff that you're going to throw away anyway, you can use that stuff to feed your plant. Once you understand uh, the NPK values and the NPK ratios, what the plant needs and when it needs it, you can like really dial in on your feeding schedule, what you're feeding the plant. You realize like, okay, I don't actually need um, all these uh, fancy bottles of nutrients. I don't need 37 bottles of nutrients to feed my plant. Um, in reality, during the flower, the veg stage, they like a lot of nitrogen. They like a lot of micronutrients as well. You know, the calcium, magnesium, that sort of stuff. When you go on to flower, you want to give them a lot more of the nit uh, potassium, the phosphorus, that sort of stuff. Once you get an understanding of that and where you can derive those natural substances from, you can feed it to your plant through the soil like it may take a longer time to break down depending on how you feed it that's why composting is so important even like compost teas are a great way to get it to the plant quickly i've brewed a lot of compost teas and it's like a fantastic pick me up for the plant i use it quite often but again the smell is horrific sometimes so um, it all really depends on when you want to do it and how you decide to do it you know that's what I would say. It all depends on how and when you do it. Yeah, I currently have a vermicompost bin, so I've got the worms in there. I have uh, European night crawlers and red wigglers in there, and uh, it's about seven months in, so um, still haven't actually taken any out and tried to top dress plants yet. Still kind of feel like I'm seeing some breakdown that needs to happen. Now it was just winter time, so it slows down. All the activity slows down. The yeah, breakdown yeah. slows down, and all that stuff. Uh, but for, in my experience, it doesn't really get smelly unless you have that imbalance of carbon to nitrogen. Um, or if, you're, if it's like too wet in there, it can attract mites. You have an overpopulation of mites, which I went through. And so uh, I, I think it's like a balancing game. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm a, I could still consider myself a beginner at this point when it comes to vermicomposting. But it's fun. It's fun to learn. And, and just knowing that, hey, maybe another six months down the road, I'll be able to take compost from there top dress my plants and i don't want to defeat any nutrients at all you know what i mean this is all waste that i've compost you know turned into compost through that there's also bokashi composting which i'm just learning about now which seems to be a little bit better in various ways uh, and i won't get into that because i'm still learning but there's a book called bokashi composting and that's what i'm reading right now to learn and you can use like additional scraps that you can't put in your traditional compost pile, uh, vermicompost. So I'm going to start a Bokashi bin soon, uh, do some Bokashi composting and uh, you know, just hope for the best. Try it out. It should be fun. That's awesome, dude. Um, I think what you said actually about the humidity as well is uh, completely, that's an awesome point, dude, because back in Trinidad and Tobago, the humidity was unreal. It was so humid. So that was a big part of like causing a lot of, of the imbalance that you referred to, you know, so it was very difficult. And I guess that that's one of the uphill challenges that I faced. Um, so great point. Great point, Chris. Let's get deeper into environment a little bit. You know, let's start with lighting first, and then we'll get into like temperature and humidity and CO2, all that stuff. So lighting, how do you suggest going about lighting when you're on a budget? Um, when you're on a budget, lighting can be a bit tricky, especially for if you're growing indoors, because, um, 
a lot of growers want the best lights and lights can be pretty expensive. But the truth is, you don't always need the best lights, brand name lights. There are a few things actually that you may want to look for when you're buying a light, like the spectrum. Um, you want to probably stay away from some of the older tech depending on your grow setup. It can get a little bit hot to run the HIDs, LEDs have turned out to be you know awesome lights nowadays. So I would highly recommend the LEDs. So there are a lot of things that you can zone in when you look for, but mainly I would suggest that growers look for the full spectrum lights, uh, stay away from the older tech such as the blur pole lights. Those lights, um, they're okay, but you know, we, we've kind of gone past that now. Um, so I really recommend the full spectrum. I recommend one with an external dimmer that really does help you when you're like, just want to increase and decrease the brightness, um, one which can be adjusted as well. So those are the main characteristics that you look for. And a lot of light companies offer those characteristics. And the great thing is that a lot of the light companies also offer like budget friendly lights. So they'll have the, the cheapest version or the most cost effective version for the um, beginner grower. And a lot of those will, you know, have those bases covered. So if you were to get one of those, you can always get another one later on. You can manipulate the lights. You can use the light bleed to your um, your benefit um, rather than having one huge light. So uh, when it comes to that, I would suggest that um, those are the main things to look for. You want to look for full spectrum. You want something that runs cool, something that's not too heavy, something that uh, does not run too hot and something that is full spectrum and has the external dimmer. Those are the main things that I look for when buying a light. Um, and again, different lights for different stages of plant growth, right? So if you have a seedling or you have a young plant in veg or maybe even a cloning station, you don't want to have a huge light, let, let's say a Mars Hydro FC 6500, which is what I have downstairs. That will that definitely fry your stuff, right? Um, so a smaller one is will will work great. So different light for different plant stages of growth, depending on your setup. I know some folks who, being on a budget, they only can get one light, and they might choose that Mars light. Uh, you know, d being able to dip it down, like you said, I, th I think is key. You know, you might be wasting light for a period of time while the plants are seedlings, but I, I think they can grow into it. But some of the man, some of these <laughs> prices of lights are insane now. There are a lot more budget-friendly options. Um, you know, there's lots of people out there that are saying that the prices are going to come down over the years. You know, as there's more competition, as production gets cheaper, prices should come down over the years. And they have been. For the past five-plus years, they have been coming down more and more and more. But, yeah, that initial investment can certainly be painful. There are some blurple lights out there, from my experience, that do put out enough photons for plant growth and actually put out equivalent to some of these top lights out there. But like you mentioned, they're older technology, the spectrum, they've got the heavy on the blue and the red, so it looks purple. And um, some people say that the morphology of the plant is impacted from that. Uh, also with the active cooling versus passive, right? With the active cooling, you have the fans on there. It's using up more wattage. That's a failure point. Yeah. You know, if your fan breaks on it, that, you yeah. know, do the coolings screwed on that so you might want to consider a passive cooling light for example but yeah there is a lot to talk about when it comes to lighting and what to look for um, I, I think it really comes down to getting the right amount of light because these medicinal plants in particular they're heavy on the light they can take a lot of light is what i'm trying to say 
And so some of these grow lights you see on Amazon and stuff, they're like maybe some small bulb, maybe they're 20, 30, 40 bucks. It's not going to be enough really to grow anything worthwhile, in my opinion. Um, it just doesn't put out the photons needed for good growth. So something to be careful of. Another topic there that uh, there has been multiple people on that podcast that has talked about. Um, there's one in particular, it says what to look for in a grow light. Search that on YouTube. And then also a grow light buyer's guide 2021 with uh, chilled LED. That was a great episode that uh, that'll help those folks that are looking to buy a grow light kind of what to look for because there is there's so many different things that you can freaking look at on these grow lights and it gets overwhelming because there's so much to learn and you don't know what to focus on and and so on and so forth so now how about uh, environment you said it's difficult for humidity I, I think you had mentioned offline that it's difficult for temperature as well how do you control like temperature and humidity and what do you typically aim for on those things Okay, uh, well, those two things were really difficult to manage um, as a Caribbean girl growing in the Caribbean. It was really difficult to manage those things because it's extremely hot and it's extremely humid. So especially if you're growing indoors um, in a grow tent, you'll definitely need a carbon filter and an exhaust fan. That helps to manage uh, the air circulation inside of the grow tent. I actually had to add some standing oscillating fans just to help with that um, Air, air circulation and air movement in there as well but sometimes that just blows around hot air right so thankfully I had an AC unit installed in the uh, in the bedroom I had to run that 24 7 just to counteract the lights um, the the heat coming off of the lights the the heat from the environment in general um, so I ran that 24 7 my bill was amazingly Hi. <laughs> um, and, and aside from that, actually, I had to run a dehumidifier. So I had one of those big dehumidifiers like um, what Mr. Canucks grows. And I hooked that up to a drain hose and had that draining directly outside. So that actually helped me to get my humidity down to around the 50s, the 40s, the 50s, especially during flower. That was the sort of range that I would look for just to avoid any bud rot. I tried not to go too much lower than that um, because I didn't want to run into any issues. But that said, um, when you're using a dehumidifier and an AC unit in your main grow room, um, at the same time, you kind of run into issues if you're trying to clone or if you're trying to run seedlings, right? Because that's sort of the other end of the spectrum as to what seedlings like. Seedlings like more humidity, seedlings like more moisture. So what I did is I found myself having to get a mini humidifier and I'll have to put that into a separate little seedling tent. So it was really difficult just sort of like dialing in um, all of the, the temperature, the humidity, and all of those sort of environmental factors just because of where I was living. And a lot of growers probably find themselves in that same sort of predicament. But once you get like the right pieces of equipment, you can really help to counteract and set that off. So in terms of humidity, when I was in flower, um, sorry, when I was in seedling stage or veg, I would aim for like 75%. Um, all the way down to maybe 65, maybe 60. If I was in veg, then maybe 60 to 50%, and flower, I would probably try to go down to 50 to 40, so somewhere around there. Um, and I did a lot of my measurements of temperatures in degrees Celsius, that's just because of where I'm from. But typically the environment, the temperature outside will be about 35 degrees, um, so it can get pretty warm. 
in, indoors it can get pretty warm as well but i would aim for like around the 26 degrees 23 degrees um sort of range that didn't always happen but that's what i would typically aim for and if current were to go or electricity were to go um trouble man trouble honestly so yeah that's that's pretty that that's the difficulty of you know growing out in the caribbean trying to get everything set up in a, for a home grower anyway so yeah just about every area it can be difficult to control temperature and humidity now what about co2 were you doing anything for that at all or just doing the normal co2 levels normal co2 levels i didn't uh supplement any co2 like there were so many pieces of equipment already in my setup that um just managing another one just seemed like a daunting task you know so i had like like i said a humidifier a dehumidifier an ac unit grow light grow tank fans um the works it was really just i just didn't think that adding co2 would have done too much more for me at that point you know so i didn't get into that too much honestly how about water what are you using? What were you using for water when you were out there? I mean, how was the local tap water? Did you have to get filtered? Were you catching rainwater? What were you doing for that? Great question, actually. <laughs> um, rainwater actually worked great. Surprisingly, that natural rainwater out there worked fantastic. So I used that quite often. But for those times that I couldn't get a lot of water or couldn't get enough, I would typically just fill it up from my tap. I pH it um, in the early stages so I know what the pH was coming out of my tap and I'd just occasionally randomly test it just to make sure that it's all at that level. And once it's at that level and I realize that, okay, the pH doesn't actually move much, I can just water, uh, use the water from my tap. But just to be safe, I'll actually use the water from my tap, fill up a few gallon buckets, and I would just set that down for a few days and let that uh, stale. That's what we call it, you know, just let the water stale and just let all of those um, heavy metals or any chlorine or that sort of stuff sort of neutralize and settle or whatever. And um, that that's all I would do. So I wouldn't get too um, complicated with the watering process simply because I knew that the pH of the water coming out was acceptable for my plants. Were you actually adjusting the pH? Like, did you have a pH meter? You had access to a pH, pH meter or using those drops? Yes. That... Yeah. No, I used a pH meter. So I actually had a, one of the cheap Amazon ones. Um, and I started off with that. And then I got like a Blue Lab one just to like make sure that like the cheap one wasn't actually setting me up or anything. Um, but it, it came out, you know, the similar reading. So I realized like, okay, this is fine. Um, it was usually around seven or seven point something, something around there. Um, and it was okay for me. So I worked with that and, um, yeah. So how would you go about determining when to water? Um, fantastic question, because that's something that stumps a lot of beginner growers. And I see you talk about that a lot on your channel. Like overwatering is a huge problem among beginner growers. Um, yes, guys, plants need water, but water can also drown the root system. So for me, I try not to oversaturate. I find that less is more. Um, if the plant is lacking water, it tends to dry up. It tends to get really soft to the touch, and you can tell. So for me, for watering, I like to um, wait until the plant is show signs of needing watering. I can tell. I touch the leaves quite often to tell, like you know, if the leaves are full of, uh, if the leaves, if the plant has been recently watered, then the leaves tend to be really thick and swollen, like almost swollen. But then if they're not, like you can like fold them over, they're very malleable. Uh, you can like, literally feel it. So I get like really in there with my plants. I touch them, I feel them, I lift up the pot. That's another way that you can tell how heavy it is, um, how much water is in there. 
Um, so that's typically what I'll do. And when I actually go to watering, I try the easiest method possible. I just fill up a bucket and dump a bunch of water over there and let that drink. You know, I just let it settle down in there. Um, usually I don't see any runoff, so I try not to water with runoff because I don't um, want any runoff. I just don't want any runoff. I don't want um, any oversaturation at the bottom of the plant pot either. Uh, I have seen instances where water can just settle down there even though you've got like holes and stuff in the bottom of the pot. So I try to avoid that. And for me, less is more. The plants can always recover quickly from, um, or easier rather, from over underwatering as opposed to overwatering. Overwatering can be fatal. You know, if you underwater your plants, if you water them and they'll be okay. If you overwater them, then may the God be with you. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about plant training techniques? Are you doing any of those at all throughout the grow? Or? Yeah, I've actually done quite a few plant training techniques. My favorite method is LST. Um, I like to couple that with topping. So once the plant reaches about three or four nodes around there, I will do the first initial topping. I don't get too technical with it. I really just get in there, pinch it off, and watch it grow. Um, I use these little LST clips, which I mentioned earlier, for those who may not be able to see. It's simply just a little clip which allows you to bend uh, the branch of your plant um, without breaking it. And in so doing, you can expose lower bud sites to light and so forth. And that is just a really great way to increase flowers, increase yield, increase health and potential of the plant. Um, you'll be you'll be happy with it. So for me, LST is a great way to you know manipulate the plant. And speaking of training, LST is also a great way that I found to get into the bonsai experimenting side of things. You know, um, but that's probably a whole different episode. But um, yeah, LST for me and topping is the way to go. Okay. And then what about like are you doing any super cropping at all or fimming or now? Yeah, um, I do fem um, if I miss when I top. Yeah, I accidentally fimmed. Um, in terms of the super cropping, I don't go out of my way to do it often unless I really have to. So like if one of the branches are reaching too close to the light or um, they're just getting too tall during the pre-flower stretch, then yeah, I'll try to super crop it and stuff. But it's not, it's not like my favorite approach to doing things. Um, I'm not necessarily sure why, because I've done it, I've done videos on it, and I've had great results with it, but I'm just not the hugest of fans. I prefer the LST, because um, to me, I can achieve the same results using LST and just like one or two tops, you know? I try not to go too crazy with the topping either. Relating budget into this, I feel like there's a lot of people out there that, you know, that are on a budget, they have smaller spaces. And that's why I want to talk about training is because that does help keep your plants confined to a small space if that's what you're working with. And um, so I'm glad Absolutely. you were talking about LST and some of the training techniques you do because it can be helpful for those that are in a smaller space, for example. Definitely. Now, are you doing anything to prevent pests at all? Oh, when it comes to pests, man, I've I've ran into some serious issues um growing out in the Caribbean. A lot of a lot of pests out there. Um I've grown ran into like the aphids, the spider mites, mites in general, a bunch of different stuff, right? So I found that prevention is a lot better than cure and having like an IPM routine, an integrated pest management routine is really key. So typically what I'll try to do is on occasion, I will just spray down the, the grow room. Firstly, I'll keep it extremely clean. So I'll spray down the grow room um, with like rubbing alcohol. I'll keep the tents clean and so forth. After every grow, I'll reset. 
Um, aside from that, on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, I will just uh, do like a little spray that I'll spray onto the leaves and that will have like um, peppermint, um, neem oil, just some of the very organic stuff. But when I did run into issues back in the Caribbean, I uh, don't recommend this to anyone, but I did have to use some of those uh, more heavy, heavy duty style insecticides on the plants just to get rid of the infestations that I had. And um, it's not recommended, but it did work. Um, but you got to be very, very careful with it, man. So definitely to avoid getting to that point, I'll recommend to anyone have an integrated pest management system, which you use because that can save you like a lot of headache in the long run. Um, there's a lot of natural stuff that you can use, like I mentioned, the peppermint extract, um, even rosemary extract, stuff like that. You can use that and mix it up, make your own mix, and you should be good to go apply it like every two weeks or so just to avoid any issues, guys, okay? Um, and yeah, that's that's what I would say for my IPM. I know there's a lot of people that use essential oils. They have diffusers, right? So they have essential oils going throughout their house and stuff like that. You can actually use those oils, right as an ipm right you, you you would dilute it you'd have like a lot of people use dish soap as a surfactant but water a little bit of dish soap use about a teaspoon of dish soap and then some drops of the essential oil um, and then you mix that all up and then spray it on your plants and that's an easy way a cheap way if you have it, already have it on hand it can be a cheap way to uh, help prevent pests from invading your growth space it well, deters pests really it uh, pests only to, to come close to your plants on that avenue so yeah i've learned something there dude <laughs> so taking a step back and, and just talking about like general advice like i mentioned that there's a lot of people out there that are on a budget you know what i mean maybe they're either a beginner just kind of getting into it or they're somebody who has intermediate or advanced knowledge and they already have their own setup going budget-friendly setup do you have any general advice for those at any level uh, that are trying to do things on a budget with limited resources. Yeah, I would definitely say um, keep it simple. Keep it very simple. A lot of times, um, like guys, remember that plants have been growing for millenniums without our intervention, you know? So there are a lot of things that you can do just to mimic the natural environment that's not necessarily the most expensive way of doing things. So try to keep things simple as possible. You know, there are ways that you can uh, use natural substitutes instead of... Um, the bottle stuff you can use um, even when it comes to like setting up a grow tent you can build your own um, importing grow tents to the Caribbean is super costly so I actually build my own out of like PVC and roofing insulation so like these are great ways to get a budget friendly fed up um, get things running um, on a budget and really just maximize your plants potential you know so that's one uh, suggestion that I would have if you can like hack a lot of your grows then definitely try to do it. Um, you can use like um, the cake cake covers as humidity domes. You may have one of those at home. Those things really come in handy. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can just be creative with. You can create your own plant labels from like yogurt containers. Um, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. You can create your own PVC scrog using PVC frames um, and the screws and, you know, like uh, twine and wire. You can, there's a bunch of stuff. So guys, really get creative. Think outside of the box. It's not necessarily all about like spending loads of money to achieve a perfect setup simply because plants have been doing this for such a long time without our help. So you just need to guide them along the way. And you don't need, plants can't tell if you're using like a super expensive 
uh, piece of equipment over it or if you're using like a three by two frame that you built and made your own scrog net out of. It just knows it's being trained, right? So think of it that way and um, just try to think of the budget friendly ways of doing things because there are, there really are guys. So I hope that that's, that's helpful. <laughs> Well said. Yeah, lots of good tips there. And I'm sure they can go to your YouTube channel and probably learn more ways to keep it budget friendly, right? Can you tell us how the listeners can find you and also wrapping things up, you know, what do you have upcoming in the future? 100% dude. Um, you guys can find a lot of stuff on my channel, the ICANN THE channel. Um, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. On Facebook, we've got two private groups. One is the Grow Support Network and one is the Growers Helping Growers group. Uh, together, we're reaching about 20,000 members. So check it out if you haven't already. It's pretty awesome. Um, we went out to Canifest this weekend as well, met out with a lot of high, um, high again and a lot of other great content creators and people in the industry. So definitely to check us out, guys. We've got a lot of stuff going on. The Talking Loud podcast. We're hoping to maybe have Mr. Grow It On, esteemed guest one day. Um, you know, and we actually started a new series called the Weed in the News series. So shout out to my wife for that. So um, just mad love, mad love to everyone who's been showing love. Hope to do a lot more for you guys. And thank you so much for having me on, Chris. It's fantastic to chat with you. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Definitely a fun talk for sure. I'll definitely have a link to Matt's channel down in the YouTube description section below. If you're tuning in on one of the podcast platforms, just search for his name, I Can THC, and his channel will pop up. Lots of good quality content there. If you enjoyed this episode, click that thumbs up button. Lead feedback if you're on one of the podcast platforms such as Apple Podcasts or just comment down below if you're on YouTube. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. I release these podcast episodes every single weekend and I'd love for you to tune in to future episodes. Matt, once again, thank you so much. My pleasure, fam. Enjoy the rest of your day. Peace out, everyone. You too. Thank you so much, dude. Peace, fam.